the great fundamental issue now before our people can be stated briefly. It is, are the American people fit to govern themselves, to rule themselves, to control themselves? I believe they are. My opponents do not. I believe in the right of the people to rule. I believe again that the American people are as a whole capable of self-control and of learning by their mistakes. Welcome to the Serve to Lead podcast. I'm your host, James Strzok. As we get started, may I ask a favor? Please help us reach a growing audience by taking just a moment and giving us a five-star rating on iTunes. It's an absolute delight to have Professor Stephen Smith with us today to discuss his important, timely, delightful, and readable new book, Reclaiming Patriotism in an Age of Extremes. Stephen Smith is the Alfred Coles Professor of Political Science at Yale, where he has taught since 1984. His list of accomplishments would consume our entire program, so let me refer you to our friend Google for more. But let me dispel one possible misconception straight away. So many of today's academic books on history and politics are, frankly, pretty hard to get through. The authors seem to be writing for themselves or their colleagues. By contrast, reclaiming patriotism in an age of extremes manages to thread the needle, being academically well-grounded while being entirely readable for a general audience. It's a call from the heart arising from a powerful mind. Professor Stephen Smith, welcome to the Serve to Lead podcast. Uh, it's my pleasure to be here, and thank you for those very, very generous comments. Well, Professor, let's go back in time to 1933. Okay. The world remained traumatized from the unfathomable horror of the Great War that ended in 1918. Britain was the greatest empire on the planet as it had been in the prior century, and it suffered grievously. On a cold Thursday evening, February 9th, 1933, the Oxford Union Society held a king and country debate. The motion under consideration was, quote, this house will under no circumstances fight for its king and country. The motion carried by a vote of 275 in favor to 153 opposed. Let's fast forward to 2021. On March 2nd, the Yale Political Union hosted a debate, resolved, reclaim patriotism. Your book was a focus, you're a participant. Please tell us about that debate and what resonance you may see historically, if any, with the Oxford Union of a century, nearly a century ago. Yeah. Uh, well, that's almost, uh, the, the two events almost uh, seem to run in parallel with, with one another. So thanks for that historical uh, re reference point. But um, yeah, I was very flattered that the U U YPU, the Yale Political Union, uh, were interested in hosting uh, a debate uh, centered around my thesis about reclaiming patriotism in my book. Uh, we had a great debate. Uh, I spoke for a short while, and then people asked questions, and then there were speeches from the different parties. The YPU uh, is a kind of umbrella organization that uh, covers the different parties at Yale from left to right, and people spoke both for and against the proposition, you know, to reclaim patriotism. Uh, it was put to a vote at the end of the evening. Uh, the, the numbers were not quite nearly as large as that Oxford debate that you referenced, uh, James, but uh, the, the uh, motion uh, in favor of patriotism passed uh, barely uh, by a vote of, I believe it was 18 to 17. 
So uh, I felt vindicated. I would have liked to have seen a slightly larger majority, but uh, a majority is a majority. You know, one vote, uh, one vote might as well be a thousand. So I was, uh, I was very delighted with the outcome, and I thought it spoke well for Yale students and the YPU that the majority um, were ready to cast their ballot in favor of patriotism. Well, Professor, one of your early reviewers. Anne-Marie Slaughter of Princeton said, quote, it's a brave man who takes on the vital and necessary task of defining and defending patriotism from the left. Mm -hmm. What does she have in mind? Well, uh, that's a good question. Uh, you know, I would uh, have to ask her, I suppose. But one of the, I have to say one of the secret pleasures I enjoyed uh, as I was writing this book, uh, and it was a book that I, it's a short book, but it was one that uh, it did take some time, time to do, and it had various fits and starts. But one of the things I very much enjoyed sort of secretly uh, in the course of writing it, when people, when my colleagues or you know, people around Yale would ask me what I was working on or it would come up that I was writing a book defending patriotism. Often the look of horror on their faces when I said such a thing, it was as, as if I had completely breached some, you know, unstated rule of political correctness that how how could you be doing such a thing? And, uh, you know, I'm sort of contrarian enough just to have enjoyed that. That, and Of course, I'm not, I'm speaking very broadly. I met many people uh, were very, very supportive of the project. But I did like being, being something of a uh, gadfly on, that, on, on, this, on this question. And uh, now, I, now I guess I have to say it's in, it's in the, the book is out. It's so it's been written, it's in the past tense, and I guess I will no longer be able to enjoy quite the same sort of frisson of, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> pleasure that, you know, come, came from, came from this. But, uh, yeah, it, it was always, it was always good for, uh, you know, often a, a converse, either a conversation starter or a conversation stopper, depending on who, who it was. Well, let's talk about terminology for a moment. Mm -hmm. There are four words that are frequently bandied about with greater or lesser precision, uh, patriotism, Americanism, mm -hmm. cosmopolitanism, and nationalism. Mm -hmm. Would you be so kind as to take us through your thoughts on each of these and how you think we should all think about them? Right. Uh, that, that could either spark a very long answer, which I don't want to do, but I'll give you a, you know, I'll try, I'll try to keep it relatively brief on this. Uh, part of, one of the central arguments of the book is that patriotism needs to be reclaimed or claimed from two dispositions that are widespread in American popular culture and uh, American popular culture. Uh, and it needs to be able to both distinguish it from them and also, as I argue, be reclaimed from them. On the one side uh, is, the, is our tendency or is a, a tendency usually found in the I would call it the elites, maybe the educa the educated elites. Uh, it can be the business elites too, as, as well as the educated elites and the professoriate and people. Is a tendency towards what you've identified as cosmopolitanism. 
the idea that we are citizens of the world, that our allegiances are to no particular country or people, but to a kind of global or globalized humanity, that the nation states of, of the past, well, of course, they still exist, but are slowly being transformed into a kind of, again, a kind of globalized world, which will be based on open borders, free trade, you know, all of the kind of, you know, alphabet soup of, of global institutions that kind of govern so much of our life. And that has created its own, you know, it's created its own ethics and its own con conception of, of people as individuals, once again, who maybe have allegiances to sort of global causes, uh, which are real. I mean, I don't want to suggest these aren't real. I mean, there are d definitely global causes that need attention, climate change and pandemics. I mean, these are these are genuinely global issues, but, you know, it creates an idea that we are some, we have somehow, we have either transcended or we are on our way to transcending the, uh, the state. On the other side of that, of patriotism, is a view with which patriotism is frequently confused, and that is nationalism. And we've seen a resurgence of nationalism in very powerful ways throughout the throughout the world at the moment in in all kinds of places china russia hungary brazil you, you the us you name it nationalism is, is an extremely potent and powerful political force but it too i want to argue is very different from patriotism they grow out of common roots or a common route to be sure but they move in different directions and one of the arguments I make throughout the book is that while patriotism speaks a language of gratitude and loyalty nationalism's invariably and I use that term advisedly because it suggests a kind of uh, determinism, but I would say sort of invariably morph into languages of anger, resentment, contempt, and fear of others. And I think it's very important to distinguish patriotism as a disposition of gratitude for who we are and what has made us and loyalty to those who have shaped us and have come before us from this idea that, uh, America must be first, it must be better, it must be dominant, and that we must close ourselves to the rest of the world. And I think that also, on the other side, is a genuine challenge to the patriotic uh, spirit and patriotic disposition. Let's pursue a little bit of that further, if we could. Mm -hmm. On nationalism, why would you use the term advisedly that it invariably Mm -hmm. tends toward these negative, exclusionary, okay. closed. Um, why is that? Can that be? Good. I mean, because one more question as you think yeah. about that. I mean, you've got, of course, nationalists, we can look at evil ones. I guess Hitler yeah. is a sort of nationalist mm -hmm. and so on. On the other hand, Gandhi was a nationalist. Yeah. I mean, how do you sort that out for us? Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. And one of the things I do in the book is I give a kind of genealogy of nationalism, the various phases that it's gone through. 
And in fact, like I say, nationalism and patriotism grow out of a common root. What is that root? It's a desire to have your country, your people, your nation strong and respected. That is a natural and legitimate desire of all peoples to have. And there is something, uh, or there certainly has been something in the past called li- what we might call liberal nationalism. Uh, my my good friend, the Israeli philosopher Yale Tamir, uh, wrote a wonderful book. It came out in the 90s, but she has a kind of sequel, vol- more recently, a kind of sequel volume to it. She wrote an early book called simply called Liberal Nationalism. Uh, sort of, she's an Israeli scholar. When nationalism is very important in the establishment of Israel, its, its story. And, and of course, the world was full of people we might call liberal nationalists, in the, particularly in the 19th century, Abraham Lincoln, uh, Mazzini in Italy, you know, the, 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 the creation of the, of the modern world of nation states uh, went hand in hand in many ways with the relation between, between nationalism and, and democracy. So these were, uh, these were areas where, right, more, nationalism hasn't entirely morphed into, you might say, its kind of evil twin. Um, over time, uh, that balance between you know, that, that, in many ways, that conundrum of term, liberal nationalism, uh, there is a question whether that's sustainable. Uh, maybe maybe it can be, but over time, I would say nationalism, especially in the 20th century, uh, starting in Germany in the 20s and 30s, and gradually moving elsewhere, uh, nationalism morphed in again into an ideology of us and them. Uh, probably the most powerful exponent of that view was a German legal philosopher named Carl Schmitt, who told us that the core concepts of politics are friend and enemy. It's, it's establishing and identifying the other, the enemy. We might call it the existential enemy who poses the threat to the unity of your, of your nation. Those enemies were initially determined to be, you know, foreign enemies, but inver- once again, invariably, what is determined to be foreign enemies become domestic others, Jews, gypsies, you know, ethnic minorities of all sorts. They become othered in, in, in a certain way. And we see that today th- throughout the world with the fear that has been created of of others of of en- the creation of enemies and that to me uh, is the way I mean invariable inver- invariable or invariably is a strong term of course in history we learn nothing has to happen in a certain way but it, it, it nationalism as I want to say has tended to morph in that direction uh, we can find exceptions to be sure. But that seems to me to be the dominant tenor of the of the way the term is is being used today, often with a kind of ethnic and racial racialized component to it.
we talk of white nationalism or something like that. Yes. You wouldn't talk. You wouldn't talk of a white patriot. The, the term doesn't make sense. But people will even identify themselves as white nationalists. Uh, many nationalists are decent people, to be sure, and they want to expunge the kind of the kind of racialized meaning of it. I I get it, but I think it is often so baked into the. DNA of the mentality that you can't just expunge it by, by sort of wishful thinking. Uh, I went on way too long, but so oh, be it. Yeah. It's excellent and it's important. May I ask you a, a follow-up uh, yeah, representing yeah. another point of view I've heard presented, mm -hmm. and that is some might say that nationalism could be good or bad. It's like electricity or new technology, and right. it's everywhere, and that one problem is that if one doesn't recognize it for what it is, or if one dismisses it, one could really misinterpret big global questions. So for example, I've seen an argument that because the US has not understood or appreciated nationalism so much mm -hmm. in recent years, that may have been one of the reasons why we went into Vietnam, because we didn't grasp the power of their nationalism mm -hmm. and misinterpreted it. How would you respond to that? Well, I completely agree with that. Uh, I mean, I think that's a Absolutely on, on target. Uh, and I think you're right to say that uh, often uh, we, who, who is we, we Americans, we policymakers, we academics uh, have underestimated the power of nationalism. It remains a, like I say, a, a global and potent political force for, for, mobili for mobilizing people. And in many ways, uh, it seems ironic, some of the shrewdest uh, users of nationalism have been communists, I mean, yes. which, is an, which is an odd thing, because officially, uh, Marx's theory is anti-nationalist. Uh, Marxism is, is, is also, in its own way, a kind of form of cosmopolitanism. Workers of the world unite. That's its famous slogan. Uh, it is something that is supposed to transcend nations and unite people on the basis of class. And yet when communists have come to power, they, of course, realize the, that nationalism is a very useful tool for uh, maintaining order, maintaining power. And in, when you look at the way nationalism was used in Russia, in China, in Vietnam, you mentioned, but in many in many communist regimes, nationalism has been uh, a very, like I say, a very very powerful uh, tool of political control and, and and mobilization. People will mobilize around the nation in a way that so far they don't mobilize in the same way around issues of class. Uh, that you know, from a social science point of view, uh, or from a Marxist point of view, is very embarrassing. Why we, we, they want people to organize on class, and yet the nation seems to be the a far more again a powerful uh, incentive for mass mobilization. And and communists came to realize this and use it very effectively. Stalin certainly did when he was facing Hitler's nationalism in 1941. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, let's talk for a moment about. The elites a little more mm -hmm. and about elite exhaustion and demoralization mm -hmm. I started by referring to this example from the 1930s and today there's a sense among some and I'm using these terms I won't put quotes in every part of the mm -hmm. sentence one might but 
that so-called elites of the U.S. are disconnected from the country. Mm-hmm. They tend not to serve in the military or other national service, despite having been granted the extraordinary privilege of having the country dedicate our most privileged uh, and, and valuable educational resources. Many seem to believe that they're not privileged, therefore don't owe anything back, and mm-hmm. often see themselves as victims or even as oppressed. What's going on? How serious an issue, or is it serious at all, you're sitting at Yale uh, for this country? I think that's a totally serious issue, and it is, in point of fact, it was one of the incentives uh, behind the book. Uh, I'll just give you a couple of, you know, brief anecdotes, uh, kind of background. One goes way back, uh, because my thinking about patriotism, uh, although, um, goes back to uh, especially the immediate post 9-11 period. And it was a, it was a moment when, uh, for one of the, maybe the first time that I, I was at Yale, where students were joining, not, not in great number, but they were, were jo- many students were joining the military to do something, to serve the country. Uh, it was in that time frame that ROTC was brought back to the campus. There was a spirited debate on the faculty about whether to admit it, but readmit it, but it was brought back. And today we see a lot of students in ROTC uniforms here here on campus. And I began thinking about patriotism in this context. What do we what what should students when when we talk about what we owe our country, what what should students learn about that? It didn't seem like they were learning anything about that. In fact they were learning about everything but that. So that was one strong incentive for uh, writing the book that I did. The other sort of anecdotal uh, thing that I began to notice, just, you know, uh, just casually, you might say, uh, I go to a lot of Yankees games. I'm a huge Yankees fan. We have uh, partial plan tickets. We go to the ballpark all the time. And, of course, every game begins with the national anthem where thousands of people, of Ameri- ordinary Americans of all kinds, uh, stand, some bring flags with them, stand, uh, different races, different classes, all people stand in respectful singing or, or, you know, of the national anthem. Does that happen at our elite institutions? No, it does not. And in fact, again, as I said, race patriotism on campus, and you know, you get you get the fish eye from people. <laughs> so there is a there is a dis- there is a very strong disconnect, and there is I, I think it would probably take a social psychologist to f- fully understand it. This spirit that you find particularly in the educated elites uh, to look askance at the very system and the very country that has given them their benefits and their privileges. Um, Part of this may grow out of a, you know, not unlaudable sentiment that, you know, they are the beneficiaries of certain kinds of unjust distribution of goods and so on. But I think more often it seems to be connected with with very negative feelings of guilt and resentment. And you see symbols of this all the time, the kind of angry resentment 
at the uh, very culture that has benefited people. Um, I'm very struck by the fact uh, that, for, for example, the Black Lives Matter movement, which I think has a lot to say for it, but uh, where, do you, where do you see the most vociferous advocates of Black Lives Matter? It's in places like Portland, Oregon. There are very few minor. There are very few, you know, African Americans who even live in Portland and even live in Oregon, and yet there's a, a paroxysm of anger and rage expressed against that goes far beyond the, you know, our our sense of injustice at acts of of racial discrimination and terrible things that have have happened of police brutality and the like. I don't minimize that for a moment. But you see these expressions of just anger, and, and I would even call it a kind of self-hatred among classes of people that, uh, that come from, you know, relatively privileged backgrounds. It's hard to generalize about everybody, but I would, I would call them people of privilege. And in ways that, again, really are deeply, deeply distressing about uh, about the future. You know, one of the interesting things that may go to that, and I'd mm -hmm. be interested in your reaction if this is a fair thing to mm -hmm. raise, is on the one hand, in the internet age, one seems to see a, a very, almost a total absence of interpersonal shame. You know, mm. people, but a, a, a ubiquitous assertion of national shame. Mm -hmm. And that's ah. a very peculiar combination, <laughs> if it's true. Yeah, no, that's that is true. I mean, one of the arguments I make about patriotism in, in the book uh, is that patriots or patriotism uh, is on the positive side, on one on one side, uh, in, inspired by feelings of pride and gratitude, pride in your country and its achievements, gratitude for uh what 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 it is his has done both for you and for for others but pride and gratitude have a flip side as well uh shame and uh shame uh, of shame we are shamed or we at least should be shamed by acts of injustice and our fail and our and our failures to live up to to our to our ideals and for that reason patriotism i argue can be can be self-correcting and should be self-correcting it's not just an example of you know my country right or wrong uh we we actually uh, make efforts uh all the time to improve our for example one example i use in the book um, we uh, gave uh, th was the effort to uh, recognize uh, Congressional Medal of Honor winners who had been overlooked in the past, deliberately overlooked because of their race, and the attempt to expand and to to expand who is a, who counts as part of the national family, and to expand that, I think, is part of the self-correcting mechanism that is built into in into a kind of patriotic disposition, and and is the, in many ways the kind of flip side of this sense of gratitude and 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 pride. 
And yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll leave it at that. Well, and if one, just to, to take that a little further, if one feels or expresses a sense of national shame, that tends mm-hmm. to be also liberates one from any accountability, right? It's, it's mm-hmm. to feel a shame for things that were done in the past that one can't necessarily affect directly mm. means a lot less than internalizing it and doing something about it today. And part of that would have to mean keeping the system working that makes all the good parts possible. Yeah. The term that I, we constantly hear uh, people do use today when it comes to question of individual accountability or responsibility, when they're called out on something or when they're, when they're seen to be doing, they're going to, quote, double down on, the, you know, using this kind of poker term or, you know, mm-hmm. we're going to double, you know, nobody, uh, no, you're right, there's, there's shame at the national level. But individuals are left are left unaccountable, and that, that's a disgusting state of affairs. I think. Well, let's talk a moment about history, if we could. Mm-hmm. Okay. Prior generations of American leaders and the so-called elites of the time were deeply immersed in history, and they did it in a way that was intended to apply it. It was very practical. Mm-hmm. So one thinks back to historians like George Bancroft, who helped Mm -hmm. really start American historiography, was active in public life and politics. Theodore Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson were such serious students that each of them served as president of the American Mm -hmm. Historical Association. Harry Truman, our most recent president without a college degree, was a devotee of history. That tradition seems gone at the moment when even the most literate of contemporary politicians rely on ghostwriters and lack of serious, hard-earned focus on history. Is this important or not? Uh, that's a great observation. And, and I think you know the answer to that. Yes, it's, it's deeply important. Uh, and it is indicative, I think, uh, that this kind of historical amnesia um, which is also go, goes hand in hand with a very selective and kind of potted re- reading of the past where people may dig to the past for evidence of things that already supports their, their prior views in some, in some respect. But in many ways, in our broader public culture, as in the universities uh, too, I mean, this is where people come to be educated, presumably, um, they're historical subjects and I would say humanistic subjects. I mean, I teach political theory. I'm in a political science department. It's a historical and philosophical topic. Uh, What we do is there's a strong uh, push uh, away from these coming from, you know, STEM subjects, uh, science, engineering, Econ- economics, which is also a kind of branch of mathematics in certain ways, uh, even psychology, which is increasingly a scientific field. Uh, and there's a sense that this is where the action is. And if you want to understand, um, you know, if you want to understand what makes people tick, if you want to understand human behavior, uh, history can get you only so far and better to look at things from a scientific, econometric, or some other point of view like that. And I think, uh, you know, the society 
depends. I mean, we, we do depend uh, to a con- such a considerable degree on experts in certain fields. Look, we're in a pandemic. We need medical experts to help us understand this. We have an economy. You need economists to, you know, as flawed as they are, you need economists to, you know, chart up policies in this. So we need this. But the, the result of this is, I think, uh, we have a growing historical amnesia which is coupled with uh, this, what we were talking about earlier, this kind of concerted attack on the foundations of our historical uh, beginnings, you know, cancel culture and the whole uh, wave of uh, this kind of renaming, which there was a big incident of this at Yale a few years ago when one of the residential colleges was renamed. It's this kind of rewriting of history and the cancellation of history, uh, coupled with this kind of scientific mindset on the other hand, on the other side, I think are both equally powerful um, uh, adversaries to a real historical appreciation of where we are, if I can use Lincoln's phrase, where we are and whither we are tending. What would you say to people who would contend that I believe Eli Yale was himself a slaveholder and, Mm -hmm. and why other than the fact that Yale is a worldwide brand and reputation, why shouldn't Yale's name be changed? Well, uh, I'm sure there are people who think that, uh, you you know, uh, we, the the debate of, I think it was about five years ago now was, was over, John C. Calhoun, uh, who was a Yale graduate and one of the one of the at that time twelve residential colleges was was named after him, and there was a big debate on campus about renaming of Calhoun College, which which was renamed. Uh, I teach a course on Abraham Lincoln. I am no fan of Calhoun. In fact, Calhoun is one of the Yes. villains of my, uh, he's one of the villains of my class. Uh, so I'm, I am by no means a friend of Calhoun. And I should also say, even though I sort of was initially opposed to the renaming, I've come to think, I, I've, I've come to support it. I think it was probably, I think it was probably the right, the right thing. But the question you raised quite legitimately is, of course, you know, once you start going down that street, you know, where does it end? Uh, nobody is pure. You know, you know, one of the things you learn from history, you know, welcome to history. Nobody is is pure. Everybody has done or said things that when looked at by the standards of today, are questionable, or so does that mean, as, as in the case, for example, of this insane decision by the, what was it, the San Francisco Board of Education to rename schools named for Abraham Lincoln and, and Dianne Feinstein. She, she apparently fell afoul of uh, something that had to do with the Confederate flag, I believe. Uh, nobody is pure. Uh, I think you can, you can make uh, you can you can make uh, distinctions. I think there are reasonable distinctions to be made. It doesn't mean you can't rename anything. Uh, for example, I strongly support renaming military base. I didn't even realize there were military yes. bases named for Confederate 
yes. leaders. I mean, for people who who took up arms against the union to to have their names, and the U.S. I think is outrageous. You know, it was outrageous. Uh, so I'm not a, I'm not opposed to that, but uh, we really have to. You know, I think you can make reasoned distinctions about what, uh, I mean, people would disagree, but I think you can have a reasonable conversation with people about what, you know, what what fits in within a a renaming or uh, culture. Let me ask a real basic question. You're dealing with these amazingly talented people uh, in every level at Yale, Mm -hmm. and people who are taking these ahistorical approaches Mm -hmm. and they're doing it based upon thought and Mm -hmm. great uh, deliberation. What do they think about the future? Does it cross their minds that in 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, people will look back and think that they were entirely deluded too? Right. No, I, that's a great that's a great question, and I, I do I have raised that you know kind of in in one form or another with with students, but uh, you know I I still I I always have to remind myself. Uh, it can be very frustrating, but I do have to remind myself. Uh, that these are still kids, you know, they don't, they're very smart, but they have very little experience. Uh, They have very little experience of the world. And, you know, they think everything in the world should conform to our own current uh, point of view or their own current moral views on this or that. And you just have to you know, I was, I'm sure, I know I was, I know I was the same, I know I was the same way then, you know, I was a college student in the kind of tail end of the, the Vietnam War period, and I, I was equally full of, you know, self-righteous moralism, and so, you know, of the of the kind. Uh, it just sort of goes, goes with the territory in a way, and part of being a teacher uh, you can sort of enjoy that, but you have to, you know, hopefully, hopefully, educate them about about exactly their their educate them about their own parochialism. Let you me know, ask you a question. They think, every, they think everybody in the past was prejudiced and parochial, except themselves. Exactly. And, <laughs> you know, they're somehow free of it, and you just have to show them, well, you know, people in the past knew a thing or two as well, and, well, and, and, and you may not, yeah. Well, Go and, ahead. And to your point, young people are young people with all yeah. their glory and limitations. At the same time, one thing that's very different, I would think, than when you came of age or I came of age is that today, for example, the recent case of Donald McNeil at the New York Times, who lost a heralded career after 40 years. Mm, I said uh, about that. Yes, because a very young person, in this yeah. case, a high school age person, mm-hmm. uh, made comments that went into the social media uh, melee, and all of a sudden this guy's gone. And, and part of the reason he was gone is because the editor of the paper didn't make the decision, rather said that, in effect, uh, pretty directly said, McNeil, mm-hmm. you're not playing to the newsroom, mm-hmm. which is meaning, in effect, the older generation had turned over to the younger generation, some kind of, uh, I'd say, heckler's veto. There's probably a new mm-hmm. word for it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so it's also being powered by 
a generational turnover. And then underneath that is one more factor that might be seen. That's a different ethnic mix among the generations. So when you put all that together, what do you see? No, you see a capitulation of those at the top who don't want to be seen as behind the curve and they want to see themselves as au courant and they they end up just capitulating to the noisiest and angriest voices out there. Uh, the other example of that, which was just sickening, uh, was that story the Times ran last week about what happened at Smith College. Yes. And how, you know, these 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 workers at Smith, you know, I think they were custodial workers or maybe campus police, were just victimized by these students. And, you know, it, it, I want to say it wasn't the students' fault, per se. It was the administration's fault for not calling this out, calling it for what it was. And it was just, it, it shows a, a failure in the fearfulness, the timidity, the pusillanimousness of so many leaders in higher education and in business, and in business too, in the cor- in the corporate world. I mean, I could give examples of it from my own university. I mean, they're not, you know, they're fairly minor in a certain sense, but every example is painful. Uh, but I, I really think it it shows the weakness and the kind of moral moral weakness of, 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 of the administrative and leadership leadership classes that they, they just fold. They just, they just fold on these issues. They're, they're just afraid. It's, it's really sort of disgusting. So you're sitting there as at the, and this is meant as a compliment. It's not meant as a, uh, yeah. anything else, but you're sitting in the center of elite education and producing elites, basically, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, for the world, particularly the United States. So given that, what, in addition to people reading and studying and reflecting and acting from your brilliant new book, how can elites be brought back into a better understanding of the country and how to serve it? For example, Yale was renowned for your military traditions as well mm-hmm. as intelligence uh, traditions in post-World War II. That seems to have been lost, as you Mm -hmm. point out in the book. Is it national service we need, or we have to wait for a crisis that shakes us to our core? What do we do? If... James, if I, you know, if I had the uh, answer to that, I'd, I'd win the Nobel Peace Prize or something, something like that. You, you know, I, I'd, I'd win, I'd win something. You know, I, I don't have an answer. I, I wish I did. I wish I did have a, have an answer to that. Uh, one of the things, I mean, this has been discussed in many quarters, but one of the things I endorse in my book, uh, in the last chapter, is a plan or a suggestion. Not that I have a a plan, but uh, I, I endorse the proposal for some kind of national service. Uh, one of the problems is, you know, we live in this vast country, 300 million people from different areas. We, we don't know each other. We just don't know each other. And when you don't know each other, you're, you're, you're in, in an age like this, you're liable, not only you don't know other people, you're liable to think the worst of them in, in some way. The internet, maybe this is exacerbated by the internet and other, other things like that. You're, 
something that would that br- that would bring young Americans into touch, into some kind of contact with people very unlike like themselves. They go to college, but they end up end up sort of meeting just people who are sort of like themselves. They may come from different parts of the country. They may come from different parts of the world. But for the most part, they're they they have similar kinds of uh, goals and aspirations. It would be a good thing for young people, maybe whether out of high school or out of college, to spend time a couple of years. They could do, I mean, military service is one thing, not not for everybody, but spend some time working in an underserved community. Uh, spend some time maybe after college teaching. I mean, teaching in a in a in an, in an under, underprivileged school system uh working for a you know wor- again working for an for a company in a in a and again in 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 a, in a disadvantaged part of part of the country uh learn about other people and have some contact with with people not like you and you can kind of enter the, help to enter their world and exp- expand your your moral horizon expand your moral horizon a, a bit uh i think that that's so important today and and yet and I, and and kids want to serve they want to do something i i see this all the time they they want to but but don't really know how and i'm not sure the institutions are there to support that you know that 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 desire so they end up going into finance or they end up you know doing all kinds of things there's nothing wrong there's nothing wrong with this but if they had some greater incentives and possibilities of of serving in a way i think you would find a lot of young people want to do that i'm i'm very i'm optimistic about young people i really am but i i really think that we need to find ways to channel their energy and their passions into things that 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 are nation building well professor let's turn to your career as an award winning mm-hmm. educator uh, what do you seek to impart to young people in their 20s as they prepare for the future in what is a very uncertain time in many ways mm-hmm. Thanks for that question and in in some in some respects it's it's sort of the most di- difficult of of all what do I want to what what do is it is a teacher it's very hard to know, it's very hard to know what what you're what what people are taking from from you and what 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 they will take away I want to give them I mean I teach most of my teaching centers around um is what we used to call still call in some ways the great books of the western tradition and i try to impart to them a, a sense of what it means to read a great book to take it seriously and to live with it and to really live with it uh to make it part of your mental furniture not not just for the duration of a class you know the 13 weeks of a semester but hopefully for the rest of your life and 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 live live with it internalize it to see the world help help you see the world through the lenses whether it's plato or tocqueville or any of the great you know political philosophers uh, that i i teach i teach from time to time so i don't know if that's patriotism uh but it is trying to 
once again, I think expand people, give people a, a deeper sense of history and give people, uh, broaden their moral imagination by showing them uh, that the most serious people have thought deeply about the problems we encounter and that we have a lot, to, we still have a lot to learn from them. Well, one of the things that people of accomplishment such as yourself gift to young people is your example. And so on their behalf, I'd like to ask you, what would you tell the 20-year-old Stephen Smith if you could sit him down today? Well, if I saw, if I saw that kid again, uh, he would probably um, not believe that we, we were the same people. Uh, when I was 20, if, if I thought I was going to have a job that would require me to have homework for the rest of my life, uh, I would have said, no, no way. That's, 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 not, that's not for me. Uh, so the, the thing is, you, life, is, um, life is uncertain, and we never know. I, I mean, here's, here's what I've often told We never know. And this is what happened to me, really, when I was when I was about twenty, probably nineteen or twenty. Uh, you walk into a class. I walked into a class, uh, a kind of introduction to political theory. I think at that time in my life, I had never heard the word. I, I may not have ever heard the word, the expression political theory. I didn't know really know what it was. I think it just sounded something sounded cool, you know, take political theory. Uh, and at the end of the semester, I still wasn't entirely sure I knew what political theory was, but I knew one thing, that that was for me. That's what I wanted to do. And it was just kind of accidental. I didn't have any prior plan to do this, or, but, but something shapes your life, and you, you, never know what that will, you, you never know what that will be. And I tell students, uh, I'm advised I'm advise freshmen, other students, they tell me you never know, you know, what class you walk into that might shape the the, re the rest of your life. Uh, you, you you're one person now, and you might end up being, who knows? You might find you might find something in yourself that you had no idea was there before, and I think that's what happened in my my case. And I was very fortunate to, I think, find what I was what I was made to do. Well, let's move to the other side of life, and you're on the older side at a moment when populations in the U.S. and elsewhere are all getting older. Mm -hmm. What is your thought about this time of life and how one can continue to add value, as you're clearly doing, and are there exemplars you look to in this respect? Wow. Uh, I hadn't expected that one. Uh, we have uh, one of the things uh, really, I mean, I, I never <clears throat> realized this, this will probably sound trite because I never, but I never real because people understand this, but I didn't realize it. Uh, we became grandparents about a year ago. And if there's one thing that's keeping me going is seeing that grandchild <laughs> and the, the, you know, the hope that I will get to see her grow up and hopefully flourish to, to wonder, you know, what kind of world. I look at a one-year-old, what, what kind of world will she take over and will she be part of? You know, it's kind of maybe unimaginable today. We, don't, we have no idea. And, you know, we, 
there's often a lot of we've been talking as we've been talking there's a lot of reason for pessimism but when i when i see a little face like that i you know i i also think there there has to be grounds for hope too and and my my book ends with with hope a discussion of hope and i think life is without hope would just not be worth would just not be worth living so we have we have to hope for the best and i and you know who knows sometimes it happens Claire Booth Luce in the mid-20th century famously instructed John Kennedy that everyone, including presidents, are ultimately encapsulated in just one sentence. Mm. What would you like your one sentence to be? I've thought about that from time to time. Uh, it's a sentence that comes from the philosopher Spinoza. And... Uh, Probably not so important to this to this group. I, I, I a number of years ago, I wrote I wrote two books on the philosophy of Baruch Spinoza, a 17th century Dutch Jewish philosopher, excommunicated, very very interesting, and in, eccentric and individ in in person. In his one sentence, he wrote in his great book called The Ethics. Um, that comes at the, la at the very end of the book. And he says, all things excellent are as difficult as they are rare. Hmm. And I've always thought that was such a beautiful sentence. The excellent is difficult and rare, but we have to strive for it. Hmm. And it was, such, it was just a, a beautiful way to end a book, a wonderful, wonderful way. What, what, a, what a sentence. To me, it said, it said everything. That is very beautiful. Uh, mm -hmm. Professor Stephen Smith, how can listeners best follow and connect with you online? Uh, I've recently on Twitter and I'm, I'm, I, I also have a LinkedIn account. So I hope you will follow some of my stuff on, on, on LinkedIn and Twitter. Also, if, if people have interest in some of my, t my course uh, on political philosophy an introduction to political philosophy, is can be found on uh, what's called Yale Courses Online, and I get letters from people all over the world who who watch the course and who enjoy the lectures and write me, and we have converse, often have conversations about this or that thing. So those are those are some of the ways. And of course, I I hope your your readers will get my book. <laughs> Absolutely, and yeah. With with that, uh, thank you so much, Professor Stephen Smith. It's been an absolute delight to have you with us, and. Thank you for your service and leadership, and congratulations again on this wonderful new book, Reclaiming Patriotism in an Age of Extremes. And th thank you very much for asking me on your show, and I've enjoyed every minute of it. And thanks to you, our listeners, for being with us. Please take just a moment to click a five-star rating on iTunes, and please send me ideas for future guests and topics, and follow us on Twitter at James Strock, or connect via our website, Serve to Lead. Until next time, take care, be strong, and serve to lead. These are not dark days. These are great days. The greatest our country has ever lived. And we must all thank God that we have been allowed, each of us, according to our station, to play a part in making these days memorable in the history of our race.